You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. My name is Craig, and I'm one of the pastors here. So if we've not met before, I know some of you, maybe your family, you're in visiting for the holiday, and let me welcome you and say it's really great to have you with us. Feels good to get up from the table, doesn't it, and get out in public and breathe some fresh air and be around people. I uh, hope you had a great uh, hope you had a great holiday uh, Thanksgiving weekend. And today, as Rob mentioned earlier, is the first uh, week of Advent. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to continue on for the next couple weeks uh, and wrap up our study before Christmas of the book of 1 Thessalonians. And um, you're going to see in a minute this really today landed perfectly because it has an Advent theme. But uh, So today we're in chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the seat in front of you. You can grab that and turn to page 574 as we study the coming king. Now, context is always important. We always want to know what what kind of background do we know for a passage we read out of the Bible. And context is going to be important as we look at this passage today. Um, Just to review very briefly, uh, here's how this church was founded. It's a church in a city called Thessalonica, which is a, a a Greek city, and in the book of Acts in the Bible, Acts chapter 17, we find how this church began. Paul, who was a missionary, an apostle, he and Silas went into this town, and they preached the good news about Jesus. And um, immediately, some people began to believe in Jesus, and a church was formed. Just from, from out of nowhere, uh, a church was created, all of these new believers in Christ sort of thrown together. And what happened was there, was a, uh, th- there began to be a, a persecution, an opposition to them. There began to be a resistance uh, to them. For their faith. And it got so intense so quickly with some arrests and this sort of stuff that Paul and Silas slipped out in the middle of the night and left the church that they had just founded. Uh, And they are, we find out later, Paul is very sad because he wants to know how's this church doing, these fledgling believers, and he's not there to sort of help them grow. And so after a period of months, we don't know, could have been six, eight, 10, 12 months, probably not more than a year. uh, After a few months, they send in a delegate, a guy named Timothy, to find out how the church is doing. Timothy comes back to Paul and says, great news. They still love the Lord. They love you. They miss you. uh, And they're really doing well. They're continuing to stand for Christ. There's a few issues and a few questions, but overall they're doing well. So what Paul does is before he can get back to them, he writes this letter that we're reading and he sends them this letter. And we're in the section now where he's beginning to give them some instruction and he's beginning to answer some questions that they have. And in the, in the section we're reading today, we find out that he's going to answer a very important question for these new Christians. It's a question that maybe you wouldn't have thought of and I wouldn't have thought of if you're familiar with the Bible uh, or if you've been a Christian for a while. But if you were a new Christian... Uh, this, the question they're asking is very, very understandable, and his answer is going to encourage us all. So let's read uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. This is God's holy word. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep 
that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Yeah, hallelujah is appropriate. That's, that's a good word. Now, this, the reason I say this is an Advent sermon is because traditionally, especially in more liturgical-oriented churches, um, Advent is viewed as a time when we certainly talk some about Christ's first coming. That's uh, his, his birth. That's certainly a significant part of it. But a lot of it is a looking and longing for his return, uh, his coming again. And so that's why this passage really is a good Advent passage, because we remember that he came, but we also long for his return. Well, we can pretty easily piece together the issue that the Thessalonians are questioning. Here's what happened. The folks heard the gospel. They believed in Jesus and their lives were changed. And then when they first heard the message of Christ, Paul told them that you are to await Christ's return. And we've already had at least three references to the return of Christ in this letter before here, at least three. A a primary one's in chapter 1. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 10, this is like a defining part of their conversion, You know, he said, you turn from idols to the living God. And then in verse 10, he says, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So he's saying, you are new people. You have new life. You have eternal life. You're joined together in this church. And now what are you doing? You're waiting for the return of Christ. So this is like their, their vision for life, you know. They're seeking to be faithful, but they're waiting his return. So evidently what has happened is since the time of their conversion until this letter, some people have died. Some people in the church, believers, have died. Uh, It could potentially be through persecution. Now, the text doesn't say that. We don't know that. But it could just be normal causes. But some people have died. And here's the question they're asking, asking. Do our friends and our family members who have died as believers, do they miss out on being with Jesus when he returns? He's brand new believers. Paul says Jesus is coming back. Oh, no, they died, so they're done. Do they miss out on the reign of Christ when he comes back? And Paul says in verse 13, we do not want you to be uninformed. We don't want you to remain ignorant about those who are asleep. We don't want you to be ignorant about this. And so he's going to inform them, and he's going to comfort them, and he's going to encourage them. And this is the purpose of the passage. The purpose is to bring comfort and encouragement for folks who are grieving and wondering what happens to their loved ones. And so he really gives us three things here. He gives us a new grief, or probably a better way to say it's a new way to grieve. And he gives us a new hope and a new encouragement. A new way to grieve, or a new grief, a new hope, 
and a new encouragement. So let me talk about grief first of all. As new believers in Christ, they no longer grieve in the same way that they would have grieved before coming to Christ. There is a new way to grieve for those who are asleep that you may not grieve as as others do who have no hope. Now, what about this language of sleep? Why is he referring to those who have dead as asleep? I believe the reason is because this is about the resurrection. And so there is going to be an awakening of their bodies. It is the, the, the condition that they are in right now is temporary while they await a resurrection body, which comes at the return of Christ, which is what we read here. So he refers to death as asleep not because these deceased Christians have no consciousness. That's not the reason. Uh, but it is because they are awaiting a future awakening resurrection, and thus, he says, don't grieve as people who have no hope. We have a hope. Now, it's important to note he doesn't say Christians shouldn't grieve. That's not what he says. He doesn't say don't grieve. He says, we do not want you to be informed about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So he's not saying don't grieve. Uh, Just don't grieve as a person who has no hope for their loved one who has believed yet died. Sometimes Christians feel a subtle pressure to put on a happy face when a Christian dies. And we certainly, I mean, you'll even hear that. When I die, just throw a big party because I'm with Jesus. To which a good response would be, that's true, but we're not. So we'll be crying. (laughs) Okay, we'll, we'll celebrate. But you, and you're with Jesus, but we're not with Jesus yet. And so grieving is appropriate. We certainly are grateful that a believer who dies is with the Lord. We're certainly grateful for that. And there is a sense to say, praise the Lord. Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So for them, they are with the Lord, and we can give thanks about that. And especially if they suffered significantly, maybe had a a death that involved a lot of physical suffering, there is a relief. There is certainly some sense of, I'm glad they're with the Lord and no longer suffering, that that is all appropriate. However, grief is appropriate as well, and we don't, we don't in any way want to sort of minimize grief. Death is an intrusion into God's good creation. We think death is normal, but that's because that's all we know. It is natural, in a sense, in a fallen world. But it's not the way things were created. God created a perfect uh, earth where there was no death. And when death comes, it reminds us that this is not the way things are supposed to be. They're only this way because of sin, and sin brought death. And so it's a reminder when you feel that sort of disorientation when someone you love dies, when you feel that at moments stages of grief, at moments numbness, at moments anger, at moments depression, all of these things, they are all a result of, they're a reminder that things are not the way they're supposed to be, that this is the result of a fallen world. But it is appropriate to grieve, and it's appropriate to express grief. 
And the best proof text in all the Bible, as far as I'm concerned, about why it's appropriate for Christians to express grief when they lose someone and why I'm not wanting any of us to misinterpret this verse, because it does not say do not grieve. It says do not grieve as those without hope. The best proof text to me is Jesus in John 11. Jesus shows up after his friend Lazarus has died. And Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, are saying, if you would have just been here, Jesus, he would still be alive. And they're so upset. And it's in that chapter where we read the shortest verse of the Bible, verse 35 of chapter 11. Jesus wept. Now, here's the thing. Jesus knows mentally that he's about to bring Lazarus back to life miraculously. And yet, he still weeps. It's a beautiful picture of Jesus entering into the sufferings, coming alongside and grieving with these two women who have lost their brother. It shows the heart of God grieving. God is one who uh, grieves over death. It's a very powerful picture. So it's important that we not deny grief in the name of hope. Jesus wept. Don't be more spiritual than Jesus. That's a really good mantra for your life. Don't be more Christian than Jesus. Don't be more God. Because when you do, you have raised standards and laws that aren't his. When Jesus shows up at a dead person and he's going to raise the person and he's weeping, that's appropriate. That's appropriate. So we just don't want the kind of false spirituality that leads someone to feel guilty for grieving. And the reason this is important right now is because it is a holiday time, and for some of us in the room, this Thanksgiving weekend and the Christmas season, which uh, officially started, I think, in July, but, uh, but the Christmas season and Thanksgiving, it, this time can be very hard for you. So there, there are folks in our church who had a Thanksgiving meal this year, and someone was not at the table that was there last year. And... So you're wrestling. You're saying, hey, I'm supposed to be thankful today, and I want to be thankful, and I am thankful, but I'm also hurting, and I'm sad, and I'm filling the blank, confused, lonely, empty, angry, I don't know, but whatever kind of grief you're, grieved for sure, whatever you're experiencing. And what I want you to know is that in those times, that that kind of heartache doesn't reflect a lack of trust in Jesus. It is the point at which Jesus wants to meet you. It's actually the point at which he wants to come alongside you. The Holy Spirit is called the comforter for a reason. And the reason, brilliant exegesis, is that he comforts. Okay, that's why he's called the comforter, because he comforts. If there was no need for us to be comforted once we're a Christian, if we just faith it and we're great and life is wonderful and I'm claiming it and I don't have any problems and I don't get sad because Jesus is Lord, you know, if that is the reality, then why do we need a comforter for Christians? The, the, the comforter is the Holy Spirit within us. That's for believers. <laughs> the, the comfort is from, from the Spirit of God. So we often need comfort. And especially in grief. 
But the point of the text for these folks is you don't grieve without hope. There's a new hope. Look at verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. There is the most, there's the briefest, most succinct statement of the gospel in here imaginable. For we believe, or since we believe, that Jesus died and rose again. Okay, this changes everything, he's saying to the Thessalonians. Um, Thessalonians. He's saying to them, this changes everything. Because we believe Jesus died for our sin and rose to new life, things are different. We have hope, and we have hope for those, like they're speaking of, who are asleep in Christ. Jesus has defeated death. He is alive. And not only is he alive, but he will return. And look what he says. He will bring, verse 14, he will bring with him those who've fallen asleep. Don't worry about your friends. They're actually coming back with Jesus. This is amazing news to tell them. He's, he's, they will be with him when he returns. When he appears, all believers will experience uh, something different. A resurrection is what he's talking about here. Our certain hope of resurrection is tied to the coming of Jesus. Um, and so that's what this passage is talking about. He will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Uh, and, and ultimately, they will rise, and we will, those who are living, as well. It's important to note that the function of this text, as we've been talking about, some people read this text and teach this text, and you would think the purpose of this text is to speculate about end times scenarios. It is not. It is a passage that is written not as a blueprint of the end of the world, but it is a passage that is written to comfort folks and to support grieving people. So the primary takeaway from the passage is meant to be receiving an anchoring encouragement, a solid hope, a confidence, and a a strength, especially for those who are grieving, especially. Well, look how he stirs all of our hope in verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So he's, he's saying here, I mean, he's speaking as if he will be alive. He didn't make it, obviously, but uh, as this was written 2,000 years ago. But he was speaking as those who are living. So he, he's a representative of the living at the time of this writing. So as those who are living, we will not precede those who have died. And at the end of verse 16, look what he says. For the Lord himself will descend. Um, And then at the end of 16, it says, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So here's his point. Don't worry about your friends who have died in the Lord. Don't think they're going to miss out. Here's what's going to happen. Their their spirits, which are alive, they're going to come back with Christ And then they will be raised from their bodies. They will be raised. They will receive resurrection bodies before us. So, in fact, you're grieving over, are they going to miss out on Jesus? They're going to edge us out by a little bit is what he's saying. They actually get resurrected a little bit before we do is what the passage seems to say. Those who who have died, they will be raised um, first is what he says. Then, verse 17, we who are alive will be caught up. So this is... This is uh, what he is giving them, good news. Um, Look at what we have to look forward to, all of us, verse 16, all of us in Christ, all of us who believe. For the Lord will descend from heaven with a cry of command, 
with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. These are all images that are in the Old Testament that picture the coming, the appearance of God. That's what the word means. It says his coming. The word is his coming for the Lord will descend. I'm sorry, verse 15 says his coming. Um, those who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord. That word, the Greek word for coming there is used a lot, uh, more in theological works, but they don't even translate it the coming. They just call it the parousia. That's the word, parousia. And so oftentimes if you read that word uh, somewhere, that means the coming, the appearance, the revelation, the, the, the Jesus is here. It's spoken of here in very much terms from the Old Testament, the trumpet which announces the coming of the king, you know, his descent. Uh, so it, it's not communicating that, God, that heaven is up there and we're down here, so to speak. It is the appearance. Colossians 3 calls it his appearance. It is appearance from the invisible world to the visible. Heaven, which we can't see, to the visible, which we can see. So he appears um, to us at that point in the parousia, his coming. This is what Advent is about. It's longing and partially about. It's remembering what Christ has done. God coming to earth as a human, and it's looking forward to this moment right here. It's looking forward where God brings the consummation of all things. And he, he appears with this cosmic fan, fanfare. It's just amazing. There's a bold announcement. Uh, there's a cry of command is what it says. There's an archangel voice. I don't know what that sounds like, but it is amazing. Uh, a trumpet uh, and this appearing of the Lord. It says we meet them in the clouds. So scholars argue that it's probably not talking about white puffy things, but the cloud of the glory of God. The cloud, whenever God appears, there is a cloud of glory around him. So it's probably talking about that. He's, we're, he's in the clouds. And then the living, so the dead are raised, and then the living, verse uh, 16, the dead in Christ will rise first. Verse 17, I'm sorry. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. So they are, the believers are caught up with him. Sometimes this word is, uh, this event uh, is described as the rapture which is not a word that's in the Bible. Uh, it's actually a Latin word that comes, it's a, it's a Latin word that translates the Greek word, which is in the Bible. So the New Testament's written in Greek, and the New Testament English translation of the Greek word is caught up. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together. And I, did, I don't know the whole history of why a Latin term is used. I didn't research that. But, but the Latin term that is sometimes used is rapture. Now, that word doesn't mean, you know, if you've heard that term before, it doesn't mean enraptured. Sometimes people think, oh man, it's just going to be this enrapturing moment. It's not enrapture, uh, it is rapture. And the word rapture means uh, to seize or to snatch, uh, something like that. So he's saying that the dead come with Christ they're resurrected first. They receive glorified bodies. They're resurrected first. Then we have the same experience as what's being implied here. So some people have taught that this is a secret 
whisking away of believers. Um, and that that is sort of the first moment of a bunch of cataclysmic into the world events. Um, that's not in the text. The text is here, the resurrection. The text is the return of the Lord and the resurrection. That doctrine um, isn't historical. It began in the 1800s, which doesn't mean it's not true, but it began in the 1800s, became popularized in the 1900s in America through a Bible which I used to own called the Schofield uh, Reference Bible. And that is really where that kind of idea of a secret disappearance of Christians began. And then that led to, well, you can watch movies about it. I'll just say that. But the, the point of the text is that when Christ returns, there's the resurrection, uh, that there is this age and the age to come. The New Testament doesn't teach multiple returns of Christ. There is a return of Christ, and that's what this passage is talking about. That Our great hope is not being whisked away from the world. Our great hope is Christ coming and establishing a new heaven and new earth that we live in resurrected bodies with him. That's the great hope. It's not escape. It's presence. It's coming. It's us with him forever. That is the hope that we all look for. Uh, the hope provided here is being with Jesus. The resurrection is connected to the return of Christ. So everyone's caught up with Jesus here, right? Um, We who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them. With who? With the resurrected believers who have come with him and now evidently have resurrected. They've been resurrected, so their their bodies are are resurrected into, into new, eternal, glorious uh, bodies. And, and uh, presumably the same thing happens with us. We are with him, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet with the Lord, and we'll always be together with the Lord. So that's the emphasis, and that is the hope. Um, and so the question can be, wh- what happens next? Once there is this reuniting in the air, and you have Jesus, you have all the dead who believe, and you have the living believers, and they're all like in the air. What, what happens then? Well, I don't want to leave you suspended. Thank you. I'll be here all week. Uh, invite your friends to the 11 o'clock show. Uh, so, uh, so what happens there? Where do they go from there? The text does not say. You just cannot get from this text what happens next because it leaves us suspended in the air, always together with the Lord. And the point of the comfort isn't where. That, that's what's missing, I think, in a lot of our doctrine of heaven, so to speak, is we, it's all about the where, and this is about the whom. This is about with Jesus and with the believers. That's why context matters. If you don't get context, you get charts of this. But that, this, isn't, this isn't trying to lay out a chart. This is saying hurting people, the ones you love, the ones you miss, they're coming back with Jesus. They're going to edge you out. They get, re- they get resurrected before you. Then you meet the Lord. And what are you encouraged by? You're encouraged by we are together with them, loved ones that we miss. We're together with them, and we will always be with the Lord. So encourage one another with these words. So it couldn't be more clear that the point is to encourage with us with what words? We'll always be with the Lord. We'll always be with the believers. So that's the good news. That's the point of the text. I will do a short sidebar about where they may go from there now. But the point, this is not what I'm about to say is not the point of the text. The point of the text is we will be with the Lord. And that strengthens us. That gives us hope. That encourages us to press on. I will at least try to answer the question, and this is in the category of big maybe. 
Can we make a reasonable assumption from this text about what direction they go? There's two options. Most would say they go up or they go down. Those are the two options. <laughs> I suppose you could go east-west. But typically, do they go up or do they go down? And I think there is a clue from the language that at least could indicate that they go down. Uh, and the, the language is, is specifically the term to meet. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet. Now, ultimately, you're going to have to go elsewhere in Scripture to answer this question. But I think this term meet, is, it's argued, most scholars, this is in the ESV study Bible if you have that on your lap, most scholars point out that the word meet is a technical term. It's a technical term in Greek that was often used to describe what happened when a notable dignitary would visit a city. So a king or somebody would come to a city, and before he got to the city, there would be a delegation of probably important citizens, I don't know, but a delegation of citizens that would go out and meet the dignitary and then accompany them, accompany him into the city. And we find this even used in the Bible this way. So in Acts 28, Paul is approaching Rome and the believers come out, this same technical term, meet Paul, and then they accompany him into the city of Rome. The, the Greek historian uh, Josephus uses this word and writes about the city of Antioch. The leaders go out to meet the Roman general Titus, same word, and they escort him back into the city. So if the term is being used in that technical way, then it's being used in a way that they would have understood, uh, which is you meet the dignitary and bring him to the city, accompany him. This is a little different. People getting resurrected out of their graves and meeting the dignitary, <laughs> the ultimate dignitary, and then accompanying him into what would be established as ultimately a, a new earth. But ultimately, you really have to look elsewhere uh, and you'll have to get your charts elsewhere. I'm just saying that's the one clue in the text that most scholars would argue it could be uh, coming down, not, not disappearing or something like that. Ultimately, the hope is always be with the Lord. And so he says, encourage one another with these words. There's a new encouragement. God created the world in perfection, but since Genesis 3, the world has been broken. And in fact, ask any grieving person in the room. In fact, it seems like death reigns at times. Like it has the upper hand, the power, because nobody escapes death. And so it seems like death is winning. When you look at the world as a whole, it seems like suffering is the winner. But God sent his son Jesus who died and rose, verse 14, and this reality changes everything for the believer. So when we encourage one another with these words, this means that we remind each other that Jesus came to die for sinners, to be raised to defeat the power of death so that we could be in Christ as new creations, and he will return to establish, to consummate all things, to restore all things, and to establish a, uh, his kingdom on earth. That's what's coming. And so there is an encouragement to us that when we remind each other, we'll be with the Lord. We'll be with his people. I don't know how the, in the air and what's, I can't explain all that from this text, but I can tell you this, this is a great hope. And he says, you can encourage one another, that we can actually impart courage, that we can actually strengthen one another, that we can actually spiritually communicate in a way that allows us to be confident and hopeful for the future in Christ. I think this is one of the, the lagging encouragements in many of our lives, in my life. I don't bring this encouragement nearly enough to myself. When I'm down and thinking it's all over and everything's terrible, I, I don't bring this to myself 
and I don't bring it to other people uh, nearly as much either. And, and I don't mean in some trite way, oh, I know you're suffering, but that's okay, Jesus is coming back, it doesn't matter. No, we enter into suffering, but we say in the midst of suffering, we have a hope. And when someone dies, we grieve, but we don't grieve as those with no hope. This reminder has the ability to impart courage. It's our great hope. And this is where I, I may have said some things you disagree with or don't know about in terms of charts and stuff. That's fine. But this is one of the biggest challenges with the way eschatology end times has typically been taught in, our, in, in sort of more conservative, fundamental even, type of uh, evangelical circles is because it gets all speculative and we miss the rooted uh, this the kind of uh, deep, abiding encouragement that God wants us to have. The other extreme is one which I know as well, which is just not talking about it at all. Jesus will come when he wants, and it's all taken care of. Let's just focus on rights in front of us. But Paul didn't say, let's just focus on what's in front of us. Paul says, encourage one another with this. This should be talked about. This should be celebrated. This isn't the big Christian secret. This should be something we're leading with, that we're anticipating things being different, that what was lost at the fall will be more than restored in the returning of Jesus Christ, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth where we will be vice regents with the Lord Jesus Christ, as was originally planned with Adam and Eve when they were called to rule over his creation. So all things will be made new. And it won't always be like this, which doesn't mean it doesn't hurt now, but it means that there's a greater hope than there is a suffering right now. He's working all things for our good. He'll make all things new, and we will be joined with him and all believers to flourish in all things in his new kingdom forever and ever and ever. So be encouraged, and not only be encouraged, but encourage one another with these words. We'll be caught up together with the believers and we will always be with the Lord. And in that moment, whether we go up or down, it won't matter. We will always be with the Lord. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org. 